Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 346. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. I'm pleased to be back with you. We have with us once again Dr. Jim Cassidy, who is associate pastor at Providence OP in Pflugerville, Texas, with a specific call to plant South Austin OPC there in Austin, Texas. Welcome back, Jim. It's great to have you. Great to be here, as always, Camden. Thanks. You're welcome. We also have with us Jared Oliphant, one of our uh, regular contributors. He's the regional coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary. He is working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back to the program, Jared. It's great to have you. Thanks. Good to be on. Yes, we're very uh, pleased and uh, delighted to have back with us today uh, for the second time uh, in the second episode in a row here, Dr. Marcus Peter Johnson, who is Associate Professor of Theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back, Marcus. It's good to speak with you again. Likewise. Pleasure to be with you. Yes, it's only been a couple weeks for us. It's uh, consecutive weeks for the listeners. Uh, We're going to be opening up, once again, Marcus's book, One with Christ, An Evangelical Theology of Salvation. It is published by Crossway. It's a wonderful book on uh, union with Christ and its application to a whole host of other theological topics. We had him on the program for episode 345, and we uh, got so involved in a whole host of interesting discussions, particularly talking about... uh, incarnation and union with Christ and the role of sin and incarnate with respect to incarnation. And uh, we ran out of time. So what we're going to do is, is devote an entire episode now to where we left off. Uh, we're going to be speaking about the order salutis and the application of redemption to God's people. We'll speak also about the mystery of the church in Christ, as well as the word and sacraments of of Christ, um, all of these things as they relate to the doctrine of salvation and specifically to what it means to be one with Christ. But before we open the book back up and continue our discussion with Dr. Johnson, we have a few things to mention. First, uh, we do encourage you to visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate. Uh, this program is listener supported, as is our entire network, and we encourage you to visit us online today to pledge your support. We thank you so much. Uh, for all the continued support we've received monthly from so many of our listeners, and we encourage you to visit us online and, and sign up if you're able for a five or ten dollar a month pr- uh, plan. It helps us to uh, continue producing all of our resources and delivering them free of charge. Uh, it does cost money to run the websites uh, to uh, you know send recording equipment to, to various places so that we can get a good uh, recording as well as um, to be able to distribute the programs free of charge. Uh, the bandwidth does add up over time. And we have a lot of great things lined up, too. Uh, Reformed Academy, some other interesting projects to help you grow in your understanding of God's Word. So visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate. I do also want to mention that the Reformed Forum Theology Conference is coming up October 10th through 12th at Grays Lake, Illinois, uh, which is just north of O'Hare Airport, a little bit north of, uh, well, it's north Chicago land, about an hour south of Milwaukee, and uh, depending on the time of day, about an hour and a half-ish from the loop downtown Chicago, right off of uh, I-94. So if you are able to join us, please visit us online at reformedforum.ticketleap. And you'll be able to sign up to uh, get a ticket and uh, be able to register and come and hear Dr. Lane Tipton, as well as Dr. Scott Oliphant, discuss what it means to be a son of God. We're looking at that in a broad sense, uh, looking at uh, Adam as the protological son of God, Israel as the typological son, the national son of God, as well as Christ being the eschatological son of God, and then what it means for us as individuals to be 
uh, united to Christ as well and be sons and daughters of God. All of that is going to be explained. We're going to have ample time to converse and interact with you. It's going to be a small conference on purpose so that the speakers can interact with the attendees. We're having a lot of great people come. So join us October 10th through 12th, 2014. Information is and uh, registration is available at reformedforum.ticketleap.com. But Jared, you also have an announcement. You're taking a trip to the United Kingdom? Yeah, I just wanted to mention real quick, we don't always get a chance to address the, the folks in the UK who are listeners, but uh, it will be my first time in the UK. Uh, I'm going with Jonathan Brack, mm. and we're going to be uh, starting out in uh, London, and that's going to be September 18th and 19th, and then we're headed to Edinburgh the next day in Scotland. And then we're meeting nice. up um, actually with uh, Scott Oliphant. He'll be teaching a course um, or, or maybe just a few lectures at Union Theological Union Theological College in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Oh. And uh, we'll be meeting up with uh, Stafford Carson, who's there. Um, so through about the 22nd to the 24th, we'll be in uh, Belfast, which I'm really looking forward to. So um, any listeners who have thought um, maybe that you want to ask some questions about seminary and um, think of degrees, masters, um, DMIN, PhD, whatever, that's what we're there for. So um, in case there is anybody out there, I guess we can refer them to mail at reformforum.org or if you want to kind of cut to the chase, um, admissions at wts.edu, you can um, find either and both of yeah. us there. So wanted to mention that real quickly, too. Yeah, thanks. We appreciate that. And we do have quite a few listeners in the U.K., and we thank you so much for listening and, and contributing and interacting with us. So this would be a great opportunity to connect uh, face-to-face if you're in the area. So check out uh, that. More information uh, can be available. Just send us an email. Jim, you also have a conference to mention. Yeah, I do. Thanks, Camden. Uh, coming up at the end of September, uh, we are having a conference here in Austin uh, it will be hosted at the facilities of Providence Presbyterian Church in Pflugerville, Texas. Uh, that is on September 26th and September 27th. Uh, I don't know if the website has the conference materials on it yet. You could check it out. If not, um, check it out on Facebook. I do know that the conference is being advertised there. You could get uh, to that information by uh, in Facebook if you friend me or you come to my Facebook page, what have you. Uh, we have it linked uh, to the Facebook page for the conference. So anyway, uh, mark it on your calendars if you're going to be down here in the Austin area. We are going to have uh, Dr. Hughes Oliphant Old come yeah. talk about Reformed worship. Uh, so it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, well, certainly an expert. We're going to be talking about Reformed worship a little bit today as we open up uh, to the sacraments. Uh, We had to leave off, as I mentioned, uh, just before we got into uh, the proper application of salvation by the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're going to open up today on the chapter on justification in Christ. But if you would like to, uh, if you haven't listened already to our first conversation with Marcus Johnson, our guest uh, today, then please visit us online, uh, reformedforum.org. Uh, slash programs, uh, slash Christ the Center, or CTC, or you can uh, just find on the homepage, you'll no doubt find a link to episode 345, and you can uh, listen to that first and then pick us up here as we open up the book to the chapter on justification. Uh, now, Marcus, uh, as we as we speak about justification in Christ, uh, that that's that's certainly a topic that has been talked about for centuries and even millennia. Uh, specifically, the relationship between justification and union with Christ uh, became a very important point during the Reformation, and it's come back up in the last several decades 
uh, in terms of how to relate those two things. Uh, what's your understanding of uh, the relationship, generally speaking, of union with Christ to the doctrine of justification? Um, the relationship being one of, shall we say, cause and effect, um, that we're justified only in, insofar as we're joined to, joined to Jesus Christ, who is the justified one. Um, and so justification follows, even if it's not um, chronologically, I think that that's unhelpful to talk about it that way, but it certainly follows logically or um, as cause to effect. If Jesus Christ is in fact the justified one, uh, the one who bore our sins and condemnation on the tree, um, there isn't justification available for us. There isn't forgiveness of sins or a sharing in Christ's righteousness apart from him. So in order to be justified, we must be in communion and union with him. Where do we find uh, textual evidence here for understanding that relationship? I mean, uh, we have uh, an awful lot of places in Scripture that speak of in Christ or in Christo. Do you see that as warrant for understanding justification happening in the context of union? Oh, for sure, no doubt. <laughs> uh, the, the first two that come to mind, one is... Uh, Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. A whole lot rests uh, uh, upon, no doubt, upon how you are interpreting, exegeting what it means to be in Jesus Christ there. But for those who us who hold that um, to be in Christ, when Paul speaks that way, he means an actual vital communion with um, Christ himself. Um, there's no condemnation for those who are in him. That means there's condemnation for those who are outside of him. So... Um, to to um, to achieve or be in a, the blessed state of not being condemned requires that we be in Jesus Christ. Um, the other that comes to mind it was uh, John Calvin's favorite, First uh, Corinthians one thirty. He thought that First uh, Corinthians one thirty was um, really uh, biblical shorthand for the whole richness and depth of the gospel that God has placed us in Jesus Christ, who is our wisdom from God. He is our righteousness. He is, our, he is our sanctification, our righteousness, and our redemption. So there, again, there's this priority of being in Jesus Christ to receive any of who he is for us. Those are two examples. Hey, Marcus, um, question about, uh, just going back to a previous, uh, the previous comment that you had made about uh, the distinction between logical priority and chronological priority. Sure. Um, it, just to... Uh, perhaps tease out the issue of chronology for a moment. Um, is there any way that we can say that the, that the, uh, that the believer or the person to, uh, who will believe uh, can be uh, justified chronologically prior to faith union with Jesus Christ? Um, a notion of something like eternal justification, is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there are, you know, there's discussion out there, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, perhaps found more in the Dutch Reformed tradition, Kuiper, uh, uh, perhaps Burkhoff, uh, where there seems to be at least uh, some flirting with the idea that the believer uh, chronologically, even prior to his faith union with Jesus Christ, uh, uh, could be or is in some sense justified. I don't know if that's a topic that comes up in your study, if you have thoughts about it. Um, just wanted to see where where the role 
and the significance of faith was relative to our our uh, justification. Yeah, the way the way I think I would uh, begin to think about that. It's interesting that that justification has sort of a priority in relation to that question because if you think about something like Ephesians one, where we're in Jesus Christ, but for the foundation of the world. Right. Another way you could ask that question probably is. Is there some sense in which we're joined to Jesus Christ or in Him before, um, through faith and by the Holy Spirit, we are in historical time and space, you know, joined to Him in our personal historical existence? You know what I mean? Um, That's right. So, um, in I'd say in whatever sense we could say, and this is just preliminary. I haven't thought a whole lot about this, but I would say in whatever sense we can talk about people being in Jesus Christ before they come into concrete historical existence, before they're born and breathe, we could probably also talk about them being justified. But, but that, but it, you know, I'm, I'm unsure about how to state that exactly, but it, there's no doubt it's true. I'm sure you guys would agree that we're, there's a sense in which we're united to Jesus Christ mm-hmm. um, before the foundations of the world. So being joined to him, do we, can we somehow be thought of, in a sense, as having participated in all that he's done? Well, in some sense, we can say that, but I don't think we want to elide or, um, you know, uh, diminish the, the vast and incredible importance about of receiving the gospel, believing, and by the power yeah. of the Holy Spirit being joined to Jesus Christ. So as, as long as you're not, um, I don't know, if you're going to talk about it, it seems, it seems that it should at least have those parameters associated with it. I think that's that's a helpful way to to put it. I think when we talk about union with Christ, people have made different distinctions about types of union, and I think there are at least three aspects. There's the decretal union, you know, that we can find all the way back from eternity, where especially in the Pactum Salutis, the Lord decrees that these are the elect. That that's something that happens outside of space and time in the mind and in the decrees of God. We also have the past historical. And that's a special union that happens, especially at Christ's death and resurrection. You know, we were raised with him, and we died with him. Even though we might not have existed yet, you know, any of us talking now didn't exist at the time Christ died and was raised. However, we were united to him, past historically. And then there's the present existential union that we have by faith. Now, often when we talk about the application of redemption, or the ordo salutis, we're speaking in terms of the present existential and uh, that's a union that, that is by faith. It is, it is a faith union. It's interesting that the Westminster Standards uh, speak about this type of subject. And, you know, for us here on the program, this is what we're, you know, the position we're coming from. Uh, chapter 11, uh, section 4, talks about justification and its relationship to eternity and, and specifically its relationship to uh, the work of Christ. Although we were united past historically and even before that, decretally, uh, to, to Christ and to his work, we are not yet justified in the in the redemptive sense, the sense that we talk about, you know, when we say we're justified by grace alone through faith alone. That does not yet happen until you believe, because it's 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 not until we believe that we have received uh, Christ's righteousness and he and he receives our sin, even though uh, he has accomplished his work. That that is Historia Salutis. He's accomplished his work. In the past, so I think those are some helpful ways to parse it out too. So, would you agree, Jim, on that? On that? Yeah, I, I, I do think that those uh, are helpful categories because they keep certain things distinguished and uh, and without separating them, as it were. Yeah. So, those yeah. are important concepts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think 
Yeah, that's good. It's helpful the way you put it, Marcus, as well. But I do also remember last week uh, we, when we discussed, and we don't also want to reduce our union with Christ to our faith experience. Um, and that's something that you place, even though the present existential union that we have, I, th- I believe, should be categorized and qualified as a faith union that is wrought by the Holy Spirit. Still, there, there's some categories and, and uh, aspects of that that, that transcend and, and uh, move beyond our faith experience. So we don't want to be reductionistic either. For sure. Yeah. What do you think about the, well, how do you, how do you fit in and treat the forgiveness of sins here, specifically the passive obedience of Christ? When we talk about being united to Christ, what role does his passive obedience, specifically his death, what does that play in terms of our union with Christ? Well, yeah, like I described in the book, um, we can talk about um, two kinds of obedience that, that accrue to us when we're joined to Jesus Christ, his passive and his active obedience. His passive obedience, um, which is derived from a Latin word, I mean, just suffering obedience, not that he's um, merely passive or merely, merely the recipient of something else, but rather he's suffering, he's suffering obedience on our behalf, which um, I'll remind the listener that Jim pointed out really importantly last time that his whole life is a life of suffering. Um, it climaxes on the cross, no doubt, in his sin-bearing, but that one of the benefits we have in being joined to Jesus Christ is that all that he suffered for us from his conception all the way through, and especially including his death, um, is a sin-bearing suffering, um, a, a guilt-negating, a wrath-averting kind of um, suffering uh, for us, that in union with Jesus Christ, uh, we therefore are the recipients of, and it has specifically to do with the um, forgiveness of our sins. And so this is one of the glorious benefits, not the only, but one of the glorious benefits that takes place in and through justification is the, um, our sharing in, or our being the, uh, uh, no doubt being the uh, recipients of uh, his passive obedience. We could talk later in sanctification about what it means to share in Christ's suffering, etc. But passive obedience having to do with um, specifically the forgiveness of our sins. On that topic of sanctification, that's obviously the next topic that comes up, um, and it's it's become such a, a hot button issue. Um, I'd say recently, but going back decades and, and centuries again. Um, but as far as what you're seeing out there in in what people are uh, talking about, writing about when they're, I'd say, debating these kinds of issues on sanctification, um, maybe just start with a, a, a general question for you. Um, how do you understand sanctification in the context of union? And maybe part two, uh, has that helped you um, maybe get at some of the the current controversies and discussions going on today? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, The gospel for so many evangelicals has become, um, you know, sort of reduced to a gospel of essentially justification alone that people understand uh, the good news of salvation is sort of being reduced down to um, the forgiveness of sins and maybe maybe uh, also the imputation of Christ's righteousness. I hope it extends that far. And that is, um, no doubt, the gospel is not the gospel without um, our being justified. And what, what you see a lot less frequently is any um, inherent connection in people's minds between sanctification and Jesus Christ and the gospel. Um, so that when the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, gets reduced to justification. Sanctification then becomes something like a problem. So we talk about the problem of sanctification, or how do we fit something like sanctification into the gospel? 
um, which seems like a foreign question to me on some level. I know it was for Calvin, and he was really deeply influential for me as I thought about um, the relationship, say, between justification and sanctification and salvation more generally. So I think when among among the problems you're seeing in um, when you run into problems with sanctification, is sanctification isn't thought of by a lot of Christians or evangelicals as um, as inherently, intrinsically related to the gospel in such a way that there's no such thing as being saved without um, uh, sharing yeah. in the sanctification of Jesus Christ or the sanctification that He is. And so, like I said before, sanctification can only be but something like a peripheral issue and only be something like a problem if we think about it that way. Yeah, that's helpful. And tell me if, if this resonates with you, but the other part of that is I'm seeing a lot of people equate sanctification with good works. Um, so that, of course, good works are involved with sanctification, but that is, um, you know, the way, the way they describe it is that just makes up sanctification, nothing more, nothing less. Uh, it, are, are you seeing that at all, too? I do. I mean, I, I see some pretty... Um, uh, I can I hope I can say this. You could, you could I guess, uh, delete it if you will, but I see some pretty shallow notions of sanctification out there. I think it's, it's precisely because we've removed sanctification from Jesus Christ, and so it can only sort of devolve into sort of notions like good works that end up being something like moral progress or... Mm-hmm. maybe uh, work up within myself some response to the gospel, that sort of thing. So it wouldn't surprise me if... And, you know, good works is sort of a... That phrase is sort of anathema to a lot of Christians who have think they've understood Luther well, but haven't understood that he had an enormous place for the role of good works in the life of the Christian, or life of salvation, for that matter. Um, so, yeah, I suspect that's part of it. Some, some of it's going to be the nomenclature and who's, you know... With a, with a justification-only understanding of the gospel, good works, like I said before, is going to sound like a threat all the time. And so we talk, uh, when we talk about good works, is that going to obscure the fact that um, the beauty and the depth of sanctification, why don't we speak more of being conformed to the image of the firstborn son, or, or, or in terms of glorification, that matter, or participating in the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ? I'd love to hear Christians talk more like that, which is to say more biblically on the matter of sanctification. <laughs> That's a good point. I love how the uh, the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, seems to frame the issue of sanctification more broadly in, in talking about the Holy Spirit applying the death and resurrection to his people, the death and resurrection of Christ to his people. And that brings up the issues of mortification and vivification. And what, what really the Holy Spirit is doing is, is conforming us to the image of Christ, but he's putting our sins to death putting our sinful nature more and more to death. That's progressively. It begins definitively as the power of sin is broken in our life, and then it's progressively applied throughout our entire life. It'll never be complete until we, Christ returns or we die to go be with him. Uh, but he is also bringing us to life. He's making us more like Christ, and, and he's raising us up and uh, helping us to walk in newness of life. And that does involve doing good works, but it's not... Um, exhaustive of or exhausted by the notion of doing good works. I think the way that you that you parse out sanctification here in your chapter is is quite helpful. And again, it underscores the idea of union. Um if if we are being conformed to the image of Christ, it makes sense that we would be united to the one uh to which we would we would share his pattern, right? Absolutely. We I mean to put it as simply as possible, we begin to look like him. Yeah. 
Right. It's not that we we call up a sense of uh, desire for good works and put ourselves to it. We find ourselves changed in Him, mm. and He begins to change our hearts so that we reflect Him, we image Him. Isn't that, after all, part of what it means? Really, what it's most basic—the basic meaning of, of being human—is to image God, and this is what God is doing by um, joining us to His Son is re-imaging us, mm. and so we reflect Him in this world. It's one of the you know really wonderful. Um, promises of the gospel. Yeah. yeah. It's a family resemblance. There, there are a lot of terms out there that involve basically renewal, um, those kinds of terms in, in the Ordo and, and in salvation. And I was wondering if you could help us straighten out a few of them, like mortification and vivification. Um, in, in the context as well of definitive and progressive, maybe distinguishing those two, I, I once heard someone say that um, they don't I'm paraphrasing, but they don't really need definitive sanctification because it's covered in regeneration. So there's a lot of these renewal terms that um, sometimes get either confused or conflated or identified with each other. Can you help sort out some of those? Well, I can try. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Mortification and vivification, for those not familiar, um, one means to be made dead, another means to be made alive. Um, have to do it, it. It should have to do directly with uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection. In fact, if we pull them away from His death and resurrection, we end up with with abstractions, and I think can sort of cloud the issue a bit. Um, so, uh, when we talk about sanctification, we talk about being um, slayed and made alive, or put to death in in the death of Jesus Christ and um, raised to new life in His. This is the language we see so often in, say, for instance, Romans and Colossians and other places. This is very important for understanding um, uh, what it means to be saved, to be sure, part of what it means to be sanctified. Normally, when we think about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're thinking about something like justification. Uh, He secures our justification in death and resurrection. Biblically, However, that extends beyond uh, justification right into the whole rest of our lives in which we, by sharing in his death and resurrection, we're not only justified, but we're also, um, our old nature is put to death, and we have new life in Jesus Christ, which is the subject normally we associate with sanctification. On top of that, I don't know if this is maybe what you're referring to, I think it was you that asked, Jared, um, that even there we have a definitive sanctification that John Murray was so uh, did so well to help us to see very clearly in this century or last century, right? That in definitive sanctification, we can talk about having already been uh, crucified with Jesus Christ, put to death in Him, and raised new life in Him, and that we are continually being uh, put to death and being raised to new life in Him. So, as we might expect, the depth and wonder of the gospel, our participation in Jesus Christ, isn't merely static and isn't merely progressive. It's all of it's all of these things together. It is. It has happened, and it is happening. It depends on whether you're talking about justification or sanctification. And when you're talking about sanctification, are you talking about definitive sanctification or progressive sanctification? Which isn't to just uh, uh, load up a simple gospel with complicated terms, but that what we're trying to do is explicate the beauty of Jesus Christ in his gospel. We see it applies on so many different levels, that today, Marcus Johnson is dying in Jesus Christ and being raised to life. And that's not a threat to the fact that I have already died and been raised to new Mm. life in Jesus Christ. Right. So when those category, when some of those things get cleared up, I think there's there there can be potentially, I hope there is, a little less confusion about it and Mm -hmm. a little more uh, a little more worship. 
It's not, neither is it a threat to the, the monergistic gospel, nor to the idea that you are justified exclusively on the grounds of the righteousness of Christ. The fact that right. he's reproducing righteousness in us is not a threat in any sense to the idea no. that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone, according to the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. Absolutely not. Yes, I agree. But I think there's a lot of confusion there where people see that sanctification understood in this way and and if it's given a place flowing from the context of union with Christ just as justification is, all of a sudden somehow conflates the two benefits or confuses them or misunderstands uh, the basis of them. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. In fact, the Scripture uh, teaches something quite the contrary. I agree. You know, sometimes I wonder if it's not... Um, it, that sort of isn't a result, Camden, of a a merely justification understanding of the gospel, like I said. Yeah, they're related, everything, for sure. Everything's a threat to justification if that alone is the gospel. Mm-hmm. But if we see salvation as far more personal and um, um, in, in, in living relational ways, if mm-hmm. you will, by thinking about it in terms of union with Christ, then, you know, conformity to Christ's image is, is, is no more a threat to our justification than, you know, living in communion and conformity and... Um, personal relationships with your wife is a threat to your marriage. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just a, ca- it's just a category mistake. Y- yes. Yeah. I think ex- yeah. that's exactly right. We're talking in forensic terms and one side and, you know, we've had right. some debate and brought up some debate on that subject last and last episode, but generally speaking, the reformed will speak about uh, justification as a, as a forensic benefit. And then we have sanctification being transformative or renovative, however you want to call it. Now, there's a third benefit that we often talk about, and there's there's friendly debate about whether it's forensic or renovative or both, and that is the doctrine of adoption. Uh, before we talk positively about adoption and sonship in Christ, could you address some of the distortions and misunderstandings of adoptive sonship, for instance? Well, I can address the ones I address in my book that yes. I, I feel like I feel like are uh, I feel like are possible distortions, or could at least lead there. Um, the one I address most prominently is that uh, adoption is normally thought of, written about, explicated, or preached under the auspices or under um, a doctrine of justification. Uh, and there's no reason, of course, not to relate adoption to justification. The question is, what is that relationship, obviously? Um, but what I lament a little bit in that chapter is that um, if you look at a lot of theologians' works or systematic theologies for adoption, it's either, uh, sadly, lamentably, not even there, or if it's treated, it's often treated as a subset of justification. And when that happens, it normally takes on the forensic uh, or legal character uh, that characterizes justification, which doesn't mean that adoption doesn't have those um, characteristics. It's that it takes on merely that character, because it's subsumed under a doctrine uh, and has no freedom to sort of sort of be its own benefit, have its own glory, if you will, have its own mystery. And so, um, so I, I document in that that in my chapter and sort of I, I you know, I, I bring up some questions about is this the right way to be thinking about adoption? If it's subsumed under justification, are we losing something about the intensely personal, relational, intimate nature of what adoption means? Um, in, in in so doing. And so I bring up some examples of how that work works, and whether it's in Burkhoff's or Horton's works, et cetera. 
and um, suggests that uh, we could be seeing a lot more adoption than that it's merely uh, a subset or benefit associated with justification. You mentioned the connection, the similarity with justification, the forensic aspect of of adoption. But did you give any attention or any? Do you have any thoughts on on the uh, perhaps the uh, the renovative uh, aspects of of adoption? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it it when it gets subsumed under justification, that renovative aspect, as you as you call it, could potentially be lost. But in Scripture, it seems like part of that adoption also has a connection, if we can put it this way, to sanctification. Because if adoption means sharing in the sonship of, uh, sonship of Jesus Christ, which is the, uh, what I try to argue in the chapter, then, then surely this, this has, a, has a, a transformative effect on our lives, that the children of God begin to look like Him. Uh, which is part of the point. Of course, that's First John 3, 2, and Romans 8, and etc. It's a much broader category than merely a forensic adoption, because when we Indeed. go to the courthouse and adopt a child, that child doesn't begin to look like us genetically or physically. Right. However beautiful that adoption is, yes. right, there's something more beautiful, more profound, more intimate going on here than that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the dangers uh, of subsuming it under justification, is it loses that that aspect of transformativeness or, or bearing the image of our Father and that sort of thing. I think with Romans 8, too, really emphasizes some of this in terms of the creation itself groans and waits really for the revelation of the sons of God and glory. There, There's something to be said about the resurrection of all believers that contributes to adoption, or at least um, is the revelation of the, of the truth and finality of of adoption, which involves not only being received into the number and uh, having a right to all the privileges of the sons of God, but also bearing that family resemblance. That's in the same chapter, Romans eight twenty nine. Oh, I agree. Thanks mm-hmm. for thanks for saying that. Where would you fit adoption into the order of salvation? Uh, we've talked about the relationship of union with Christ to justification and sanctification. How do you um, conceive of adoption fitting into this entire mix? Good question. <laughs> Um, right alongside, I mean, the way I would put it is, um, you know, and I don't know if uh, Drs. Tippett or Gaffin talk about adoption in this regard. You'll have to remind me in a second. But I would say that um, when we're united to Jesus Christ, we share in all that he is for us. Yeah, and it's part a very of that, Calvin thing he, to say. Yeah, well, yeah, he's <laughs> the one that most deeply influenced yeah. me there. Um, part of that all that he is for us is that he is... Um, the true Son of God, and so by being united with Him, we share in His Sonship. Um, without, of course, being the sons of God, the Son of God ourselves, we share in that Sonship simultaneously as we share in His passive and active obedience, simultaneously as we share in His death and resurrection, etc. So, yeah. um, all that He is for us, He is um, in the in the whole of His saving work in person at the moment we're joined to Him. So, yeah. I wouldn't have, you know, and I I put it in my uh, in the chapter there, I wouldn't have adoption following justification or sanctification in a causal way, per right. se. Right. Although there are different ways to talk about this and nuance it, I grant that, to be sure. But that from the very moment we're joined to Jesus Christ, uh, we are indeed the sons and daughters of God. Yeah, and I think that's a helpful way to put it, that the the benefits are distinct and simultaneous in, in their inception. 
but they, they also have different characters, and we, we want to recognize there's an eschatology to the application of mm-hmm. redemption too. The sure. most glaring and obvious point is sanctification that continues on throughout our entire life. But that's not to say the inception of sanctification is not uh, simultaneous with our justification or with our adoption. You know, I believe it's uh, it's a Acts twenty eight six or it's, so. It might be Acts chapter twenty six. It's in there. That talks about us being sanctified by faith. We're justified by faith. We're also adopted by faith. And when we have faith, and when we're united to Christ presently, existentially, we believe on Him alone for our salvation. We receive Christ. He's not parceled out, you know, where we don't get Christ in installments. However, right. we do we are united to Christ by the Spirit, and the Spirit, over the course of our Christian walk, makes us more like him. So there's an eschatology. But it, uh, we shouldn't say that, um, I, I personally don't think it's biblical. I know there's a heck of a lot of Reformed people that would disagree, but I don't think it's biblical and, and warranted to speak about one benefit causing another in some sort of mechanistic way. Mm-hmm. I thoroughly, I thoroughly agree. Yeah, but yeah. I think it's a, I think that mechanistic or causal relational way of viewing it mm-hmm. is a symptom of an, a symptom of a view of salvation that precedes it. That's a great point, Marcus. I think. And you guys have said that and pointed out really well in your discussions on Christ the Center with um, both Dr. Tipton and Dr. Horton, where that came out, I think, rather clearly. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. You know, another important benefit that often gets short shrift, I hate to say it, but uh, we speak about justification and sanctification a lot. Often adoption is is included in that mix, and it should be. Um, But those are kind of usually treated as the triumvirate, but but we don't often speak about preservation. And then, of course, with glorification in Christ, you've devoted an entire chapter to this subject. Why is it important for us to consider preservation also as, as happening and occurring in the context of union with Christ, and what would be lacking, obviously, if we didn't have that benefit of salvation? Well, pastorally, the implications are huge. I'm trying to say how to answer this question best, right. but um, the first thing that comes to mind is the assurance and comfort of of the one joined to Jesus Christ. Is he what? What kind of a savior is he? Is he kind of safe savior that's faithful? And given my um, the remnants and and. Uh, uh, the remnants of sin in my life where I don't see myself as faithful and I'm not always um, exercising faith and I doubt very often and uh, I don't trust the Lord the way I should. Is he still faithful? These sorts of questions are just absolutely enormous on a pastoral level. Um, and I'm, and we can be glad and I think, it's, I think that's the reason why it's addressed so often in Scripture and, and by our Lord himself as he consistently um, proclaims and shows his utter faithfulness to the end. So many scriptural passages there. Um, in fact, I um, in, in the chapter, I had to limit them on some level, where he, 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 over and over again, the Lord Jesus tells us about he'll never, ever leave us or forsake us, and all the wonderful ways that he does that. Anticipating, it seems to me, that um, we can that in our times of doubt, our times of distress and grief and anguish, when everything's dark and bleak, and even if we speak about our sins being forgiven and the imputation of righteousness and eternal life, there's still this question for most, most of us, if we're honest, will he keep me? Will he keep me forever? Uh, and because it's addressed so often in Scripture and because it's such a vital part in, scripture, uh, in the Scriptures about what it means to be saved in Jesus Christ, I thought it was really important to devote a chapter to it. So those are the first couple of things that come to mind. With regard to the doctrine of assurance, um, could you be able to uh, 
uh, perhaps uh, give us some pastoral counsel as to answer the question, how do I know I am united to Christ and that I will continue to be and ever will be united to Christ? Oh, I'd love to. Um, and that is actually, that does serve as a grand transition. I don't know if this is what you were thinking, Jim, but um, the answer to that question, it seems to me, has to revolve around, and not, not only here, but it has to revolve around where is he present to make himself known and assure us of that. So the way we can know is when we hear him speaking it to us, when we hear his promise. And so that's why I think we, to answer that question, we first have to be thinking about the proclamation of the gospel, the office of the preaching office of the church, in which Christ is present to announce himself and his promises, and also the sacramental offices of the church, in which he gives himself to us in word and water and bread, so that we can know every time we gather, he really is mine. I, he speaks to me here. I hear him through the mouth of the preacher, and I know as surely as I hear him that it's he speaking and, and I belong to him. That is the first way I want to answer it. Obviously, that revolves around... Um, of course, the promises of Scripture uh, to which preaching is uh, directed. So what do you think about that, Jim? Would you add anything to that, or would you want to correct that or nuance it a bit? No, no, just uh, other than to give give a hearty amen and then supplement uh, by asking a question. And I don't know if this is jumping, you know, real, real quickly, uh, perhaps too quickly into the other sections of your book, but... I'm really interested in, um, in, in what you're doing uh, in the chapters on ecclesiology, especially with regard to the sacraments. And so maybe, uh, you know, piggybacking off of the question about assurance uh, and then your answer about the word, um, what role do the sacraments play with regard to understanding our union with Christ and perhaps with a special view towards uh, the role of the sacraments, uh, you know, in developing and strengthening our sense of assurance as believers. Yeah, I'd love to talk about. Cameron, do you want to go right there? I don't know. If yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think the two are the two are related. I mean, your your next chapter uh, is the mystery of the church in Christ, but but clearly the sacraments are a, a major portion of of our ecclesiology in some sense. The two are highly related. I think I think that's a great question. I think we just open up the topic and we can address both chapters at the same time. There's no reason we can't. Sure. Yeah, I think there's an organic connection. I was hoping to sort of demonstrate that on some level in the book that I, um, in fact, I think I opened the uh, chapter on ecclesiology, you know, asking a question the reader might have. I thought this was a book on soteriology. Why are you talking about the church? Mm-hmm. And I would have asked that question a long time ago, too, before I started reading Calvin, who would think, again, that was an oxymoron. That was a, it would be, it's a false dichotomy to ask. To ask that question, and maybe demonstrate that on a small level to to some readers that these are organically connected uh, doctrines or revelations or truths or realities. Um, but state, state take something like preservation uh, that that um, when Jesus Christ unites Himself to us, He vows to and promises never to leave or forsake us, and no one will take a, uh, us out of His hand. Well, how do we know that? What's one of the ways we know that? Well, we hear him speak it, we, we read him saying it, but then on top of that, as Calvin says, he gives us additional assurance. We taste it, we feel it on our tongue, in our mouth, we can see it, we experience it in water. It's tactile, right? I can put it in my hands. And as Calvin puts it, one of the reasons why the Lord condescends in such a wonderful 
gracious way, it's because we are indeed creatures uh, uh, with materiality, right? We have flesh and blood. And so um, it's a great assurance to us to know, to be able to touch and see and taste the gospel of, of Jesus Christ and know that he is for us, no doubt, but also in us and we're in him. And this is what the Lord's Supper does so powerfully and so clearly um, as an exegesis of the gospel uh, is do exactly that, appeal to all five of our senses with the gospel. And I feel like, I don't know if this is a direct uh, quote from Calvin, but um, so the, the gospel is not only preached and therefore heard, but it's also tasted and felt. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point. Um I wanted to a quote I came across this morning uh, from a friend. It's it's a little bit lengthy, not not too too bad. I wanted to read it um, to you and then see what you think about it, especially with regard to to the role of the sacraments. Uh, this is from Robert Bruce, and he's talking about the the Lord's Supper. Uh, you get a better grip of the same thing in the sacrament than you do uh, than you got by the hearing of the word. That same thing which you possess by the hearing of the word, you now possess more fully. God has more room in your soul through your receiving of the sacrament than he could otherwise have by your hearing of the word only. What then, you ask, is the new thing we get? We get Christ better than we did before. We get the thing which we had more fully, that is, with a sure apprehension than we had before. We get a better grip of Christ now, for by the sacrament, by faith, my faith is nourished, the bounds of my soul are enlarged, and so where I had but a little of Christ before, as it were, between my fingers and my thumb, now I get him in my whole hand. And indeed, the more my faith grows, the better grip I get of Jesus Christ. Thus the sacrament is very necessary, if only for the reason that we get Christ better and get a firmer grasp of him by the sacrament than we could have before. Um, I think that that's, that's an interesting quote. There's some arcanish language that's thrown in there, et cetera, that may be confusing things. But I think that uh, Robert Bruce is putting his finger, no pun intended, on a very, <laughs> uh, the very point you were making before about the tactile nature of the sacraments um, with regard to uh, through getting Christ and understanding Christ, understanding my union with Christ in a whole new uh, and different way than simply through the ear gate, we're also getting Christ, as it were, through the eye gate and through the other senses. Yes, indeed. You said that was Robert Bruce, right? Correct. Writing in the 17th century? Uh, I don't know his exact Dates. It was a, uh, a quote that came to me from my friend Glenn Clary, who we've had on the show before, but okay. uh, I don't know the, the years of, of the quote. I believe, yeah, he has a uh, treatise on the Lord's Supper a lot of people uh, absolutely love. Yeah. When you were reading it, not only do I, do I think it was lovely and uh, should be affirmed with all the appropriate um, you know, qualifications, but that all depends on about a prior understanding of salvation. But some people might be surprised to know that in a sense, um, Calvin, who had written just before him, if it's the Robert Bruce I'm thinking of, said something not many people know that Calvin said. He said the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we have the gospel communicated to us most clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's provocative. For chapter 17, mm-hmm. I think. And you, and you, but I don't remember what paragraph, but I'm trying to find it as I'm talking to you. I don't know if I will. But in any case... Uh, the fact that that skipped over is interesting because that what Robert Bruce is saying there echoes much of what Calvin says himself. 
So I'm I'm glad to hear you read it, and I'm I I I'd be interested in Calvinist uh, reform types and evangelicals get a better sense of the importance of the Lord's Supper and the theology of the Reformation. And when the significance of the Supper begins to wane in our churches, it's a sign of serious, I would say, sickness, a malady in relation to our understanding of what it means to be united to Jesus Christ, obviously, in in churches or um, among Christians who aren't affirming a robust understanding of union with Jesus Christ, it'd be no wonder if the Lord's Supper, and for that matter, baptism, began to have a lessening and more and more diminished significance in our churches. They go, quite frankly, hand in hand. Yeah, I think that's that's spot on. That's that that's exactly right. And I think that one of the things that we've been trying to put our finger on at Reform Forum. Uh, is that uh, while we rejoice in uh, you know what we're seeing in terms of a greater pre- appreciation for Calvinistic soteriology, um, you know we're saying well the Reformation of the Church here in America uh, it doesn't stop <laughs> with a, with a Calvinistic soteriology. Um, you know we, oh, we need yeah. to continue to go further and deeper. Uh, deeper into the actual life of the church, its ministry, particularly with regard to its worship and sacraments, um, and kind of recover, uh, you know, this high view of the sacraments that you see there, particularly Calvin. There's a quote um, recently that I heard uh, that comes from Calvin that basically says something to the effect of, wherever the Word of God is preached— and uh, the people of God sing hymns and say their say prayers. There ought to always be the Lord's Supper, um, because the Lord's Supper signs and seals what is given to us in the hearing of the Word read and preached. Yeah, it keeps us from being Gnostic on some level, right? It keeps us from merely being a matter of the brain or something like sure that. Sure, it merely a matter of our cognition or memories or something like that. It, it brings it right down into our flesh and blood existence. You're right, Calvin says that more than once. And as you know, he fought for a weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper, and it was rebuffed by the uh, Genevan Council for it. Not many people are aware of that. Uh, must, have, must have grieved him deeply, because if, if you read him in the Institutes, he, like you say, Jim, he, he says, any time the Word of God is preached, there is to be the Lord's Supper. Yep. To, exegete, to exegete that gospel, to bring home the gospel, i.e. the presence of Jesus Christ right into our five senses. You know what's very interesting is that uh, the reformed uh, folks, with you know, with with a certain level of justification, um, no pun intended, uh, ha- have been uh, criticized for perhaps being overly cerebral, and uh, and and there is an element of truth to that. Um, but I think that the solution to that problem is not to downplay doctrine. Uh, the solution is not for us to uh, mitigate our preaching, uh, but it is, I think that you put your finger on it, the solution to the criticism of being overly cerebral may in fact be a higher emphasis upon the doctrine of the sacraments and the Lord's Supper in particular, uh, so that what comes then to our minds and into our hearts by the grace of the Spirit is sealed and confirmed uh, by the, uh, the 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 tactile, the the physical, the visible um, uh, experience of the Lord's Supper, uh, so that the two go hand in hand. Um, but the Lord's Supper, I think, could be an answer to uh, to perhaps the uh, the, the over cere- overly perhaps arguably the overly cerebral nature of Reformed ministry. Yeah, to quote Calvin on the Lord's Supper in Ephesians five, let's labor 
less to explain what's happening, but rather to experience it, to go right along with your point, that the Lord's Supper gives us a stop, right? To stop at the explanation, as important as that is, experience what's taking place here. And that's an important part of our, our of the task and privilege of theology, is to, is to help people to experience the risen Christ, right? Mm. That's yeah. That's to to see his body yeah. broken and his blood yeah. shed, uh, to taste it, and to have actual, albeit spiritual, uh, communion and fellowship with the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Lord Himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now we've been speaking a lot about uh, more or less a vertical relationship that the sacrament introduces. Well, it is a means of grace, and it introduces a. Um, a heightened form a, and a, a greater sense in which we are united to Christ and participate in him through the sacrament. Marcus, what do the sacraments do in terms of our horizontal relationships with other believers? Because there's more going on in terms of the observance of the sacrament, baptism, and especially the Lord's Supper, than is merely an individual's relationship to the Lord. Uh, what does it mean in terms of our corporate body and our corporate uh, nature in, in our lives with other brothers and sisters in Christ? I'll take it that's almost rhetorical. That's why the question's so important. So if we go, if we retreat a little bit and, and talk about the nature of, like I said, uh, I, I put the chapter there right at the beginning of the book, the nature of our union with Jesus Christ, because everything sort of ends up circling back to that. If the nature of our union with Jesus Christ is, in fact, that we're really and truly joined to Jesus, the, the incarnate Jesus Christ by the power of the, by the Spirit, and this is a real union in such a way, uh, that we're incorporated into him. The scripture tells us that not only are we incorporated to him, but by, by being incorporated into him, we are, in fact, and unless this is merely metaphor or figure of speech language, which I take it not to be, that we're, in fact, joined to one another. Right, Kevin? I think it has to be. It's it's only logical. And, and you know, that's the ecclesiology of, of the Bible. Uh, w- what are we? we? You know, I don't think any Christian would deny, or should not deny, it's a clear teaching of scripture that all Christians comprise the body of Christ. And it's not just that we're united to Christ, but through Christ and, and the work of the Spirit, we're also united to one another. Absolutely. And and therefore, I mean, there's some interesting implications there that, that are shortchanged when we have a poor sacramentology, or if we don't even like the word sacrament in the first place. And and if we think of these things as mere memorials, yeah. um, there's a strengthening fact that happens, uh, a strengthening aspect uh, that happens to our souls and, our, and to, to our existence that extends to all those who uh, are partaking by faith as well. And um, that's something that's important. I think it's also a way in which we can really emphasize ecumenical relationships. Um, I maybe, agree. maybe people don't recognize that either, but... You know whether we're Methodists or or um, you know Presbyterians or Lutheran of all varieties and all stripes. I mean, if we are professing Christ and uh, professing the, the faith in Christ and in the true religion, in the gospel, and we're partaking of the sacrament, you know, regardless of our sacramental theology, there's still some form of visible union that transcends the denominational bounds. There's still something to be said about our our um, about the visible church in that regard. That's For really sure. mysterious. Yeah. For sure. In fact, um, the Lord's Supper, if we should take it seriously, as we should, um, said, you know, sort of scandalizes the, the divisions or schisms in our churches. Because it tells us that we're, in fact, one with one another in Jesus Christ. So what we do in our, uh, um, you know, apparently endless 
um, separations or divisions or denunciations is against the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's against Jesus himself, in fact. And it would be the Lord's Supper that, that would, you know, it say that the clearest to us, and maybe help to bring us to a sense of lament or a sense of a real urgency about um, being being one with one another, that longing for the sense that we could celebrate the Lord's Supper together uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. No doubt the Lord's Supper should help us to see that, but, but if we keep reading the scripture, if, if, we, if we treat the Lord's Supper as something merely like a memorial, or we, and then, then we subsequently read the scripture in merely figure of speech sorts of ways, like we say that church is the body of Christ and mean it's like a political body or social mm. body or something like That's that. Well, all the, all the force and wonder of the, um, you know, what it means to be the body of Jesus Christ, that we're one in Christ Jesus, is all lost. It's all lost to sentiment and um, moralistic bromides, etc., so I think you're right. It has all the potential and force uh, to bring us to a sense of the wonder and the awe and the mystery that we really are one in Jesus Christ, and that's not a figure of speech. It's a reality that transcends yeah. any kind of uh, oneness we have with one another outside of Jesus Christ. Um, and so yeah, I think you're right. It would be a it would be a, a spur uh, to, and I hope, uh, um, incentive for us to to really be the one holy Catholic Apostolic Church that mm-hmm. we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this topic of union exploded for me when I looked at it through the lens of ecclesiology, and then um, and quickly found out coupled with a doctrine of covenant. Um, there's just, I mean, it's on every page in scripture. Um, so, can we? What what's your understanding of of how those doctrines relate? I know that gets into an absolutely enormous <laughs> topic, but maybe we can just say a, a couple things on um, covenant in relationship to union in relationship to ecclesiological um, issues, God, God's people in general? Well, I can say two things. Again, I don't know if they'll hit exactly what you want to. You're right. It's a huge, multifaceted topic, uh, worthy of much conversation, for sure. Two things that come to mind when I studied union with Jesus Christ and thought about the Church, and if we want to say nature of the covenant, etc. Because um, I went to Moody, and Moody's a, a dispensational institution, and I recognized in some... Uh, those debates that took place between, uh, even between and among dispensationalists, but also between dispensationalists and covenantalists, um, that there's, there was very little talk often about what it meant to be united to Jesus Christ. So what I found so, um, in, in many places, sort of disappointing about what we could call sort of classical dispensationalism um, is, um, how should we say it, a, a glossing over or maybe an ignorance about what it meant um, for us to be bound together in union with Jesus Christ. So, for instance, if it was a uh, uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer, for instance, who would talk about an, an eternal distinction between the Jewish people and the Church. And then I started, you know, to read about what it meant to be united to Jesus Christ, and I said, well, that's impossible. Uh, all the people of God, are, we only are on the basis of the fact that we're being united to Jesus Christ. So surely the consummation of all of this is going to be that we're joined to Jesus Christ, and this provides a way uh, to think about a church in, in, in a way that's not fractured, in a way that sort of breaks up the people of God into two sorts of peoples, which I'm, I'm glad to report most dispensationalists aren't really there anymore. They've, they've seen at least some of the nuance there to not uh, keep that distinction eternal. So that's one of the things that comes to my mind, is that 
union with Jesus Christ, the reality of that helped me to see through some of those distinctions in such a way as to say, we can't be saying talking about eternal distinctions here, that, that the, the covenant, the, the promises to Israel and the, and the church come together in Jesus Christ um, already now and certainly uh, um, in eschaton, right, in, in mm-hmm. glory. So that's one of the things that comes to mind. Um, the, uh, let me think about another. I had another one on my mind. Do you want to say anything about that while I think about what else I was thinking about? No, that was good. The The passage that came to mind when I'm thinking about this that puts both those things together, I think, beautifully is it's kind of an obvious passage, but John 15, when he talks about the vine and my father's the vine dresser, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Um, it's just a beautiful picture, I think, of uh, being in Christ with the other branches that are also in Christ. That, to me, just kind of centers and, and locates um both the, I guess, soteriological, covenantal, and ecclesiological question. Yeah, I, thanks for putting it that way. That, that would have been a much more easier way, to, uh, easier way to put it, that there's a sense in which Jesus Christ, you know, because words like covenant and dispensation and even church or ecclesiology be, can, be, can become sort of abstract unless they're centered in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I think the reality of our union with Jesus Christ gives... Uh, uh, sums it up in such a way, gathers it up in such a way to give some coherence to it, at least in my thought. It sounds like that's the kind of thing you're saying, too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I also want to say something. I just thought of what it was, and I'd love to hear your comment on it. Um, you're all uh, Westminster graduates. So you'd be able to help me on this point. I brought it up just very briefly last time we talked, but another way that um, union with Jesus Christ has uh, at least spurred my thinking about matters like covenant are... Um, if, if covenant is uh, is a description of the relation between God and man, and the new covenant is the um, the culmination, the fulfillment of that uh, relationship between God and man in such a way that there's reconciliation between God and humanity. And when I thought about being united to Jesus Christ, I began to think of the covenant, like we discussed last time, in more personal sorts of terms, rather than merely contractual sorts of terms. And again, those aren't set against each other. But more specifically, I began to think about, um, I began thinking about, I'm hoping you can help me here to see where I may be going wrong, that um, the covenant isn't so much a thing as a person. And so what it means to be in, what it means to talk about the new covenant, when we talk about new covenant, can it become an abstraction apart from our thinking about Jesus Christ in such a way as to say, is the covenant identical with Jesus? In other words, does he perform something called a covenant, or is he himself that covenant? Or do you think that's just sort of an irrelevant question? I think it's a good question. Um, I'd like to, I think I might have mentioned this in our last interview with you, Marcus. Uh, I love the language of the the children's catechism when it asks, what is a covenant? Uh, Covenant is a relationship which God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. Um, So if you See, covenant, again, is a notion that uh, is designed, I think, to obliterate uh, all abstraction uh, and et cetera. And, and again, that more uh, abstract, uh, cerebral type of approach to understanding theology, because uh, covenant understands that it is uh, a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, a personal that, relationship. It's it's mm-hmm. a personal relationship. So I'm I'm nervous about the idea of equating or identifying covenant with Christ 
because there are different covenants within redemptive history and of course uh, or within history more generally and of course uh, covenant begins with Adam in the garden before the fall um, and that is a relationship that God establishes with with Adam and through Adam all of his posterity uh, but also creation itself is a covenant um, God covenants with his creation as he makes it that the creation itself is is um, is covenantally related to God, mm. um, so that even creation obeys His will and word. Um, so, so covenant is is neither an abstraction nor is it. I don't think it can be collapsed into the person of Christ exclusively. Well, if you look at at uh, Hebrews nine, for instance, which talks about Christ becoming now the mediator of a new covenant, I think it's helpful there to see the strict identification of the relationship, uh, the the essential component that we have a person here, but he's also mediating something. He's mediating that relationship and that, that covenantal arrangement. So the I think that, that kind of language that the author of Hebrews uses, and we can find that in plenty other places of Scripture, but that is a kind of a foundational place to look in Hebrews 9, also underscores the fact that the two can't be um, elided is is a word we've used already, but uh, confused or collapsed. But but it, but the point I think stands that the the covenant has to be thoroughly personal. I mean, it, it is it is Jesus Christ who institutes it, and it is through Him that we have it. And because we are in covenantal relationship in the new covenant, we are utterly and uh, and uh, fully bound to a person, such that such that what His is ours. Um, so I think that, I think the train of thought is on the right direction, but maybe there's some you know uh, nuance or some distinctions that we can make. Yeah, I, I just if I could just pop back in here for a second, mm-hmm. um, you know I, I think that one of the problems with Torrance's uh, criticisms of of the covenant and covenant theology is that he understands it as being exclusively in contractual terms. And I don't think that that's the way that covenant is, is historically generally uh, understood by the reformed as a cold, uh, mutual, equally mutual back and forth between God and man. So, Mm. um, yeah. So I debate on it too. Yeah, 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 there is. Um, but anyway, I yeah. I think if we understand it in the way in which the children's catechism explains it, <laughs> that that cuts through uh, a whole lot of red tape theologic. Mm. You know, one of the classic definitions you hear sometimes in theology exams comes from Old Palmer Robertson that a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. But that that doesn't even apply to all covenants that that are spoken of in Scripture. Um, necessarily. So, I mean, there, there's confusion on there. there that covenant and the definition of covenant is is a can be a slippery thing, and it's it's a I won't say an entirely moving target, but it's something that there is debate on even within uh, confessing circles. So, mm-hmm. uh, but I think kind of like I, the kingdom. Yeah. Well, yeah. What's the kingdom mm, of God? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's right. a difficult subject. 
However, I do think the relational aspect and the personal aspect, which can also and does include contractual components in Scripture, uh, is is certainly uh, something that needs to be held on at all costs. That's the point. Why does God covenant with us? That's how he relates to us. And if we if we lose sight of the relationship and the personal interaction that the covenant affords, then I think we've really missed the point of the covenant in the first place. So I'm, I'm so thankful uh, for you, Marcus, for your entire book, um, laying these things out, but also bringing us back to the main point uh, that we, as uh, God's people, have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's really what being united to him is all about in the first place. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Marcus. It's so it's a wonderful to have you. We thank you so much for indulging us on two episodes. We really appreciate you taking the time, and we would encourage everyone to take a look at the book, One with Christ, An Evangelical Theology of Salvation. It's published by Crossway. You can find out more information at crossway.org. You can also purchase the book from our favorite vendor, wtsbooks.com. You can get a good price there. And also look for Marcus's upcoming book. Uh, is there any estimate on the, on the future book on the Incarnation? Yes, March 31st, I believe. Nice. So take a look. And, and your co-author on that was? John Clark. John Clark. Wonderful. So take a look in March. I'm sure we'll revisit that, or I should say visit that subject uh, when the book comes out. We wanted to uh, point everybody back to our websites, of course. Uh, you can find us online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well as how to get in touch with us. A good ways to do that are sending us an email, mail at reformedforum.org sending us a tweet at Reformed Forum. We want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.